You are listening to the National Hispanic Media Coalition's podcast, Leaders Among Us, which airs on KHBG Radio 101.5 FM. On Leaders Among Us, we speak to prominent leaders in their field to figure out the key to success, whether that be intelligence, cleverness, determination, hard work, or all of the above. Our guest today not only has those qualities, but what I would also like to add is she is a visionary and has a toughness about her. What I admire most of all is that she says it like it is, straight up. American politician Gloria Molina can claim many first. She was the first elected to office in 1982 as state assemblywoman for the 56th district. In 1987, she was elected to the Los Angeles City Council, where she served as the councilwoman of the 1st District until 1991. In February of 1991, she was elected to the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, representing the 1st Supervisorial District and served for more than 20 years. Molina is the first Latina in history to be elected to the California State Legislature, the Los Angeles City Council, and the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. Gloria Molina, you are a leader among us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's get start off with a simple question. In your opinion, what is the definition of leadership? Well, leadership to me is someone who provides leadership to the community on issues. Uh, gathering people together, motivating them on an issue, and then being their advocate and trying to to take it, hopefully, to, to the end goal, as they say. So providing leadership is, is really quite a responsibility, but I define it as leadership on social justice issues. And what kind of leaders, growing up as a child, what leaders did you have to look up to? Well, besides my parents, and I had a father who was very, very much a leader of the family, I had a grandmother who was pretty impressive, uh, my abuelita Celsa in Mexico. The reason I see her as a leader is because she was in charge of raising all of her brothers and sisters. Her parents had been killed. And it's amazing watching her organize her life and organize everyone else and put everything together and every single day accomplishing a series of things, getting them done. And then, you know, it was just amazing the work she got done. So that was growing up. But certainly when I went to school, I started reading about various women leaders from Madame Curie to, you know, all of these wonderful people, presidents and so on. But I never really saw much leadership within our own community until I went to college and, and, of course, heard about Cesar Chavez and, you know, Corky Gonzalez and all of the others in the Chicano movement and, and started hearing about them and was very impressed, the fact that they were leading our community on the issues that were important to us. Let's go back to your grandmother. What part of Mexico is she from? She's from Casas Grandes, Chihuahua. And um, her name is Celsa Molina. And she never married uh, because her parents were killed when, when she was 17 years old by the last Apache raid that they had in Casas Grandes. And so she had the responsibility of raising all of her brothers and sisters and keeping up the ranch. So she was an impressive woman. I, I always admired her and respected her. Yeah. I'm very much like her. And that was at what age? Well, she, she started at 17. For me, I mean, I... No, 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 for your grandma. So she was 17 years old? She was old 17 years and old. And raising how many children? She raised nine 
of her brothers and sisters, and she maintained the ranch. And what's interesting about it, it was a small little ranch, but it was productive enough so that every one of her brothers and sisters, when they went off to get married, had a piece of land that they would farm their home, and she always sent them away with money. So she did very well for all of them. And my father is really not uh, she's my aunt, but my father was born here in Los Angeles, and at the age of three, he was returned to Mexico. We don't know what happened to his father or mother. Um, he was returned to Mexico, and so she raised him, even though uh, she is our aunt. But I, we call her Abuelita. My dad always recognized her as her mother, but she was a very impressive woman. So your father was born in America, mm -hmm. but he grew up in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And where's your mother from? My mother is from Casa Grandes, Chihuahua. They oh. both are. That's where they were both raised. And my dad came across uh, without papers initially uh, and worked kind of in a bracero program and then eventually got to Los Angeles. And he knew he had been born here. So he went over to La Placita Church where he'd been baptized and was able to get all of his documents. And of course, once he knew he was legal, he was able to bring my mother across, and, and they were married. And, of course, I have a, I've raised a large family. I'm the oldest of 10. So you're the oldest of 10 children. That's you grew right. up in Pico Rivera? In, in a barrio in Montebello called Simons, and then later on my parents bought a house in Pico Rivera. Okay. And what did your parents want from you? My parents wanted from all of us to graduate from high school, to have command of the English language, and to have a job where we wouldn't have to work with our hands and our back. My dad always wanted us to work in an office. Those were the, the goals that they had for us, besides going on and having a very traditional kind of family, getting married and having lots of children. So you have been quoted, I just never have been exactly what everyone wants me to be. What do you mean by that? Well, again, both my father and mother thought that I should at least, you know, work for a while and then get married. Uh, my father sat me down when I was about 27 years old and was very concerned that I hadn't been married. <laughs> he was very worried that no one would be able to take care of me at the time. And I said, Dad, I'm doing very well. I have my own condominium. I work at the White House. I'm doing very, very well. I really don't need a man to take care of me. But he thought I was wrong and I should get married. My mother also thought that I should be more traditional uh, in, in many respects. I think later on she enjoyed my independence. Uh, but initially, she thought I should be more traditional. And every so often, she would not chastise me, but again, counsel me on how to be, you know, a different kind of a woman that I was. I was very bossy. I mean, I was brought up as the oldest and in charge of everyone else. And then, of course, once I went into politics, the same thing. Everybody expected me to be uh, more passive. They wanted me, you know, they had all kinds of expectations. And even when I was in the legislature by other legislators, they, you know, I was going to work just on child care issues and these little issues of women instead of taxation and, you know, health care and all of those kinds of issues. So there's always been expectations of me that I, I really haven't fulfilled. But I am very proud that I've done what I wanted to do. And that's what's important to me. So, Gloria, what got you interested in public service and running for office? Well, I look at public service as something that everyone should do. Everyone should be involved in some kind of civic involvement. As for myself, I never did really like politicians and had no need for them. Um, I was part of the Chicano movement, an anti-war activist, and always our biggest problem were the politicians that weren't really doing what we needed them to do. And so, very frankly, I didn't feel good about them. But I learned along the way as I got involved in the community and its issues, that if we weren't at the table, 
then nothing was going to change, whether it be the school board, the Congress, or the legislature. So I got involved in supporting Latinos and others running for office and really was was very interested in that kind of work. And then, of course, there was an opportunity. In 19, I had worked on reapportionment uh, because we knew that our population, the Latino population, had grown in California. And so consequently, there was an opportunity to secure additional congressional seats. So when that happened way back in 1980, I thought it was an opportunity to maybe elect the first Latina to the U.S. Congress. So I went to the men in the community who many of us had supported and talked to them that here was an opportunity to support a man and a woman for the U.S. Congress. Instead, I was informed that they had already decided the two men that were going to run and really weren't, it wasn't the, yet the time for a Latina in the U.S. Congress or a Latina to run for this office. I was very discouraged by that and disappointed because we had supported them against, in many instances, Anglo candidates who thought that they represented the community and, and really were helpful to them. So um, it put pissed me off. I was a little angry about it. But very frankly, it was important for for us to make a claim and to state that we needed to get involved. We also needed to be at the table. So down the line, a seat came up in my own backyard. I was working for then Assemblyman Art Torres. He came to me and said he was going to challenge the incumbent for the, the legislative Senate seat, and he would support me for this particular seat. And I said, not me. I'm just too opinionated. I'm I'm not your candidate. I'm going to be the campaign manager and the fundraiser. That's the role that I wanted to participate in politics. And so I went looking for a candidate. And regrettably, all of the Latinas I knew who were lawyers or who were the kind of people that I thought would would be effective in working, turned us down because she knew they knew the guys were not going to support us and more than likely we wouldn't have a chance of winning. So at the end of the day, it was really important that we have someone to run. Art supported me. Congressman Royval supported me. And those were two very good endorsements in the community. I was challenged, of course, and the rest of the men supported the male candidate. We worked very hard in 1982. We put together a campaign that got me elected to be the first Latina in the California state legislature. Still wasn't that comfortable with the whole idea of being a politician because I, I wanted to work on issues. But once I got there and started working on issues, of course, I enjoyed the process because now you were at the table and you could make a difference. Even though I was the only Latina and, and a minority in the legislature, and it was a still a difficult road, at least I was there, I had a voice, and I could legislate. Gloria, you have accomplished so much and touched so many lives as a public servant. If you had to choose the top five accomplishments that were more rewarding to you, what would those five be? Well, I would like to point that I did all of these wonderful things in high school dropout legislation, but unfortunately, all of my bills were vetoed by the governor because I wouldn't support a prison in East Los Angeles. I fought him the entire time I was in the legislature, so I'm very proud that today we don't have a prison in East L.A. How did you get the women involved from East L.A.? Well, what happened is it's interesting. We started having small meetings, and of course, we went to the churches and talked to different people. And they were equally as upset as I was about it. And little by little, we organized and organized around the churches. And luckily, they were also very interested. So before you knew it, we created, and there was the creation of the Mothers of East L.A. And that's they were an advocacy group that wanted to protect their neighborhood and their community. And they became very, very effective in, in joining us in, the, in that battle. And while we didn't win the war, eventually it passed in the legislature because I... 
we had someone who changed their vote along the way. Um, and then, but when I came on the city council, I was able to file a lawsuit against the siting of it in East LA, and I was successful in that lawsuit. So I didn't win the battle completely in the legislature. I did win the war by at least not having it. So that was one of the key things. But I'm very proud that, you know, it, in other areas, some that are not even noticeable in maintaining and creating safety while I was in the city council, maintaining the streets, paying attention to our parks and our libraries, because those are our places where we go to. Uh, and certainly when I was in, in, um, in the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, I think I brought about a lot of changes in different ways, a little bit more monitoring from the supervisors on managing the departments, maintaining the budget, having control of the budget. I got, when I was there uh, in 1994, we had a terrible deficit. We were looking at closing down parks, not having lifeguards on our beaches, not providing health care. So after that, I was a real watchdog on the budget. And we've been able to really weather the storm very well because we have good budget provisions that we've created that, that they've been upheld. And so we have a very solid budget. And, you know, if you don't have a good budget, you can't do the work for the people. But then I went on to, to do all kinds of other things besides parks and libraries that I'm very proud of and, you know, the gold line because it was part of the transportation committee yes. that goes to, to the east side. But also Grand Park, which is an important um, urban park in downtown Los Angeles, La Plaza Cultura y Artes, uh, creating a lot of public spaces, East LA Civic Center, things that I did out there that I was very, very proud of along the way of managing all of the issues before the County of Los Angeles. Well, Plaza Cultura is a big one because I remember so long ago, you know, Mexican-Americans, Latinos were trying to get a museum together. That's and, right. you know, for some reason it just never got to be, but you pushed ahead, and now we have Plaza Cultura. Tell us a little bit about Plaza Cultura, because you're still on the board. I'm still on the board, and I'm very proud of it. And you're right, there were so many of us. I remember Esteban Torres was the first one that talked about creating a facility of this type. And, of course, it didn't happen. And then we talked about it when we were in the legislature about creating something like this. I was on the city council, and we put together a committee to put one together. And there was sort of a beginnings of it. Um, so when I went to the county, um, one thing that I wanted to support, I didn't know if I was going to do it, but I wanted to be supportive of some nonprofit putting something together. Because if you look at every single major city in this country, they have a founder's museum. Los Angeles does not have a founder's museum. And our founding was by Mexicans. Yes. And so, you know, we needed to focus on the beginnings of Los Angeles and the contributions of Mexican Mexican-Americans and Latinos in the future as to what we've done to, to create this beautiful megalopolis. And so Plaza Cultura is an opportunity to showcase our contributions, to highlight our history, uh, our participation, and a place for children as well to get the kind of reinforcement that they need because they don't see it in their books, in their schools, in the media. And so we need them to get the kind of idea that they can do anything they want to do. So we highlight artists, we highlight sports legends, we highlight politicians, we highlight leadership, educators, all across the board. So when children and people walk in, they know that they are part of a community that is robust, that provides leadership, and is changing things every single day. And they need that kind of, of reinforcement because they don't see it every single day. Well, it's a beautiful location, and they're busy. They're constantly having speakers and events and tours for children 24-7. 
The climb to the top in politics can be a tough for anyone running for office. But as a woman, there are particular hurdles that can make the journey upward toward position of power and influence especially challenging. And you kind of referred to this earlier. What obstacles did you encounter as a woman and how did you overcome them? Because you must have you must have experienced sexism. Of course. Of course there was sexism from day one in everything that we ever did, as well as being a Mexicana, a Latina. So there's always been that. When we were involved in the, the whole, quote, Chicano movement, I remember the guys always relegated us to making the menudo for the fundraisers and mimeographing all of the posters. Instead of having an opportunity to speak before a group or to get involved in strategizing, we were kind of relegated to this, you know, this homemaking kind of, of chore. Um, certainly in politics, they really wanted us to be a part of it, but they saw us as their liquors and stickers, not necessarily people that they were going to support along the way. So that's been the case all the time. But even when I was elected to the state legislature, the sexism and the racism there was amazing. I remember a very, very good man, a legislator, who's a very liberal guy, welcomed me and said how wonderful that I had arrived because now I could work on the issues. There would be leadership on the issues of bilingual education and childcare. And when I got there, I told them, well, I'm interested in a whole range of my community needs so much, but they had already pigeonholed me. This is what I was going to be doing. So you come across it and sometimes you have to confront it. And sometimes I did. Like when I ran for office, I had to challenge the guys because I couldn't get it, let them get away with that. And then sometimes you have to let it roll off your back because if, if, if you, you can't be angry all of the time, although I am angry quite often but you can't be angry all of the time. So there are moments that you have to roll with it and and you'll find your moment and your time to remind them of maybe their sexist comment or, or the racist comment, which usually happens. Well, when a man is tough, it is a great quality to have. But when a woman is tough, she is considered difficult. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's me. I'm difficult and uh, hard to get along with and not agreeable. I mean, if you look at the articles in the LA Times, there are so many adjectives in front of my name before they even mention my name uh, about me uh, because they want me to be a little bit more go-along. I've had reporters ask me as to why, why can't you just be more agreeable? And I said, agreeable to what? If you look at this issue and articulate all the points on the issue and they go, they're not interested in that, but why do you have to be so combative? And I said, you know, I'm the only one here. And sometimes because you're not listening, I have to be a little stronger, a little bit more assertive in order to get myself heard. But my responsibility is to really be an advocate and um, I don't let anybody get away with dismissing me or dismissing my community. And sometimes you have to be very assertive and very aggressive. I'd love there to be an army of all of us. And when someone else is doing it, then I can step back. I don't need to be the one that has to push forward. But we got to build those people that are going to continue to push forward. Gloria, so many times it seems through your politics, you've been knocked down. What makes you keep getting back up in the ring? What is inside of Gloria that keeps making you get back up? It's the issues. It's what's going on in the community. There's still a lot of things wrong. I mean, I wish I were, I don't want to be necessarily elected, but I still things I want to change, and I'm still involved in trying to make things happen and to change. 
our children are not being raised in an environment where there's, it's, you know, where racism doesn't exist, where sexism, they're still having to combat those issues. I'd like it to be more opportunity for them. So we have to be part of advocating for it. I I see ourselves as being leaders of the future with our population being so large, we need to start stepping up into every one of those leadership roles. There's still so many things in, in, in the political scene and everywhere we go where we need to be that advocate. And so even though I'm not there to do it, I am supporting others in doing it. I'm part of a I'm trying to teach a class at Whittier College on Latina leadership because I know we need to fill that void. That would be great, Gloria. Yeah, we need to continue to do that. So we need to empower others. We need to mentor others. We need to continue to work because we're, you know, we're the elders. We're on our way out. But very frankly, there are these people need to continue to do the battle because we think we've overcome all of these things. I mean, I can't believe the kind of sexual harassment that we're hearing about today because we thought we dealt with that a long time ago. Well, let me bring this up. Recently, more than 140 women at our California state capitol, including legislators, capital staff, political consultants, lobbyists, signed a letter calling out the pervasive culture of sexual harassment and mistreatment. Have you ever encountered sexual harassment? And if so, can you share your story? (laughs) Well, of course, all of us have had some kind of sexual harassment all along. I have never let it get to me. I remember when I was working um, for an organization, a nonprofit in East LA, and I got set up by my boss to meet two other men. And it was like I was supposed to be a girlfriend of these guys. And I remember going out to the lobby, having him called out to the lobby, and I really read him the riot act, saying this was so so disgraceful. You know, Mm -hmm. I got a cab and I went home. And so I figured the next day he's going to fire me. But he didn't. Uh, And I told him that, you know, that was totally inappropriate. He should never do that with anyone. But that was my first time that I confronted it. And every so often I'd go to a conference or something like that. And, you know, you're talking to someone and you're very involved in an issue. All of a sudden they start getting cozy with you. Like, you know, you're supposed to have something, you know. It was horrible. And so you just kind of always keep your distance. But certainly when I was in, in the legislature or in any role that I've had, even as an elected office, there are still men that dismiss what you say. Sometimes you'll be sitting in a conference room um, and and having a major role. I sat on as vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. I was in the White House. I've served on legislative hearings and things of that sort, the Board of Supervisors. And you might present something and everything, and it has no value until a man says it. And it's frustrating to see it. And you'd like to call it out every single day, but you can't do that. So you come across it. So there's been personal uh, you know, aggressiveness toward me personally when I was younger. And uh, well, let's talk about when you were younger. Cause, okay. You know, I, I was sexually harassed when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And it it's different when you're not experienced, when you don't have a lot of life experience behind you and how you react and, you know, deal with the situation. So when you were younger and dealing with that situation, did you have another female to talk to or even your father to talk to on how to deal with this individual? No, I didn't. Um, you know, it's it's you didn't, but I did know that that's not what was going to happen and that's not where it was going to go, and I was going to accept the consequences of whatever happened. But I think that there were just so many times where people in power 
were trying to, again, harass you. I even had a priest who, in the confessional, was was sort of uh, harassing me as well. I look back with it. I was like a seventh grader at the time. And I I think now if I, I think back, you yeah. know, it was inappropriate what he was saying to me. Mm. So there are those kinds of things that go on. And, and you, it's tough. And you'd hate to see anybody go through it. And, and you know, you think that men would have learned by now that that is not appropriate in any way whatsoever. But you're hearing it more and more every single day and it's it's unfortunate we need to arm ourselves we need to create our own shields and we need to know how to address it and in many instances men are so powerful that like i said that next day i was prepared to be fired by my boss who i had confronted the night before but luckily he didn't and he said he respected me and he understood and no he would never do that again but again i know he did quite often to anyone who allowed themselves to be victimized in that manner wow well During the 2016 United States presidential election, the Washington Post released a video accompanying an article about then-presidential candidate Donald Trump and television host Billy Bush having an extremely lewd conversation about women. Trump said, quote, I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. Yet after Americans saw this video and heard the way Trump disrespected women. America elected him as president. What are your thoughts on that? What does that say about our society? Well, it's shameful. And it's shameful even today. He has continued to (laughs) disgrace himself in every single manner and way. I don't know how people are letting him get away with it by imitating a disabled man, by harassing Gold Star families, um, you know, the way he's been doing it, if John McCain, you know, instead of saying he's not the kind of hero he would like, he'd rather be heroes that are not captured. It was just, he continues to do it. The environment politically, it's amazing what's going on. And 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 it's really a, a difficult time because there are people who are buying into it. And because of that, I think we're seeing, again, a lot of, of racism continue to go on unchecked because people think they can get away with it all of a sudden. He is setting the tone for the country, and it's the wrong tone, and it's really unfortunate. Hopefully, more and more members of Congress are going to start stepping up and calling him on it, but it doesn't seem like he's learning any lessons along the way. I wish he would respect the role and responsibility of the presidency that he's gotten to. The rest of us have to accept his his presidency, and I wish he would understand and respect the duties that he has under, under his responsibility as a leader of this country, of the world. Um, So what advice or what message do you have for um, young Latinas right now? And I'm excited about this class that you're going to be. Tell us more about the class at Whittier College. Well, you know, Whittier College is a fascinating small college, but there are so many Latinas attending that school. When I went, uh, I received an honorary doctorate from from the university, but I was there with so many Latina graduates. It was so very impressive. So I'm finding that there are a lot of Latinas that are graduating from Whittier College, and there are many that are graduating from all of our colleges and universities Our women are doing very well. There still should be many more of them in our colleges, but they're doing quite well. So I really see them as having the potential to really take on the kind of leadership roles that are going to be demanding of our community. Because as we continue to grow, not just here in Southern California or in California, but across the country, we're going to have to be business leaders, 
political leaders, leaders in philanthropy and the arts. We're going to have to be leaders in science and engineers in all of those roles. And they're going to require leadership because we're still going to have to be the advocate. We're still going to have to push for more opportunity to have the opportunity to have equality and justice, which we know has to happen in this country. We're going to have to advocate that our kids graduate from high school, that they have an opportunity. And of course, that they see um, their potential in the media around them. Today, it is embarrassing how we are not represented in something that's so significant and so important as the media. Even the internet and all that is going on, there still is a tremendous presence. I know I look at, at CNN and MSNBC and CBS News, and I always look at their commentators and all the people they bring in from various places, and they hardly ever a Latino, a Latina on these panels. They have all these people speaking their point of view, and all of a sudden, they're not there. We need to be at the table. We need to be there, being part of that discussion, part of that leadership, and are expressing our point of view. Well, um, I got to tell you, I agree with you totally, uh, especially right now with the sexual harassment that's going on in the entertainment industry and politics. Right. And yet all the morning news shows... I'm sorry to say this. I mean, but they have women, but they're blonde, blue-eyed, white women on. That's right. I mean, we, this is terrible, but we're being sexually harassed, but they're not taking our testimonies. It's, it's very, it's almost abusive that a little Chicanita is waking up every single day and she's not seeing her images at all on television. And even the novelas at night are still blonde. And it's just, it's, it's amazing how we are not a part of that. We need to change that. And that's where leadership comes in. And so hopefully many of the young Latina leaders are looking at those opportunities, whether they're going to be lawyers, whether they're going to be businesswomen, or whether they're going to be politicians to take on that responsibility and make those changes. Our children need to grow up and know, like every other child in this country, that they can do anything they want to do. Some of us have been able to overcome it and didn't let that bother us and we moved on. But there are still many children that when they don't see those images, they just don't think they can do it. And sometimes they just don't know how to fight for their own opportunity. Well, Gloria, thank you for being a leader among us. And listeners, thank you for tuning into the National Hispanic Media Coalition's radio and podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud and streaming live from our website, www.nhmc.org. Hit us up on NHMC Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until the next time.